Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett, and uh, today we got Cole from Texas, and this is the first holiday chat call of 2020. Hey Cole, how you doing? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing I'm doing really great. Um, tell me about uh, what you'd like to talk about today. Yeah, so I am. Uh, I'll give a little bit of background real quick. I'm just I'm a young entrepreneurial minded individual. I'm 22. And I'm, uh, I've done a little bit of, uh, I guess not, I've tried to start a business mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm in the process of working with somebody trying to build up a business. And I, you know, just from the couple months I've been doing it and have done it, I see the aches, the pains, the, there's a, there's a lot to it. And so, uh, entrepreneurship by acquisition seems like the most plausible, most efficient and the best odds, uh, statistically speaking. And so that's yeah. what I'm seeking. And so now that I've picked that path, I'm essentially trying to discover my long-term goals or explain, you know, these are my long-term goals and then work backwards from there to determine the best types of businesses to buy for me. And what okay. I mean by the best types of businesses is like the industry to go into, do I want an online? Do I want a brick and mortar? Uh, do I want like an HVAC business or a plumbing business? Um, are there certain niche businesses like sheet metal business? Um, you know, how do you really, how do these people find these, how do these people discover them and how do they know that it's going to be a good fit for them? Okay. So, so then why don't you tell me about the end of the road? Where do you want to end up? So the end of the road for me is owning multiple businesses and being really being free to, to kind of explore and travel and pretty much do what you want, <laughs> I would say. Is my end goal is to have freedom to do whatever I please, you know, whether that's to work or whether that's to hang out with my family more. And I want to do that by acquiring businesses and putting CEOs in place eventually to run those businesses. So I would say like the idea is to like the Warren Buffett of, you know, business acquisition. Uh, maybe I don't want like, you know, I'm not going to be, I don't want to be worth $80 billion, uh, but I want to be, you know, I want to have enough businesses, to, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars worth of businesses. Uh, you may, are you familiar with Andrew Wilkinson? Uh, just a little bit. Right. So something like similar, like pretty much what similar to what he, like his, what he has going on right now. You know, he's got like a hundred million dollars worth of businesses. So um, he so hires CEOs hang, to run them. Hang on. When you say a hundred million dollars worth of businesses, do you mean that's the business's value or that's the amount of cash flow derived from them? Um, I don't, I couldn't, I, okay. So, so let, so let me ask, know, I ask him, I would, uh, let me ask you this question then, cause it might be easier for you to answer. Um, mm -hmm. what sort of income would you in today's dollars, would you like to see rolling in from your business empire that you build up over the course of your career? Uh, millions of dollars. I, I couldn't put, I couldn't lay a finger on it to be so like millions of I mean, dollars like, a year. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and here's why this is an important question because there's a very big difference between wanting to have an income of several million dollars a year or wanting to have enough income that you're free to travel and go and do different things whenever you want. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you close your eyes and you imagine yourself in this in, in this future, when you're 
you know, maybe 25 years from now or whatever timeline you're thinking, what, what are your days occupied with? Like, are you buying a new Lamborghini every Monday? No. Or, <laughs> right. Well, but, but this, this is why it's important because um, when you actually consider what you want your day-to-day life to be like, and some people do get excited about high status items and luxury goods and things like that. Um, I know people who've done well for themselves who got excited about those things and they bought a few of them and then they realized that they weren't that exciting afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> getting into, <clears throat> excuse me, is that getting yourself some businesses that can provide the lifestyle you're looking for could be a lot easier than getting a bunch of businesses that provide you with $2 million a year of income. Right. Right. I guess I what I'm not I'm not like a uh I'm not like a seeker of like Lamborghinis and and uh material things. Not that there's anything wrong with people that, you know, that have that mm-hmm. desire. I think the biggest thing for me is that it the capital allows me to do what I enjoy, which is researching. Like I'm like I'm like a uh, hundred miles wide and an inch deep. And so, mm-hmm. but that's not, that's, that's good for like, you know, the people at the top or not the people at the top, but if you have different people that go, you know, you're the guy that goes a mile wide or a hundred miles wide and inch deep, but the people that's not going to be good to run your business. You're probably, you're going to need somebody that goes, you know, a hundred inches deep mm-hmm. and or a hundred miles deep and an inch wide. Yep. So, yeah, so I know that that's my type, and so that's why I would want to hire like CEOs and things like that to put in place on the in different businesses. Uh, mm-hmm. I know I'm going to have to start out as the CEO of right. whatever business I buy first, but eventually I'll be able to hire somebody. Um, so, so the people that I know who own multiple businesses, mm-hmm. um, I can give you in a nutshell what their journey looked like. They they in one way, shape, or form ended up in their first business. So whether it was a family business they grew up in or they bought it or they started it, what have you, and mm-hmm. they became really good at running that business and it was working really well. And mm-hmm. then other opportunities appeared, usually because people were able to identify them as a potential acquirer. Mm-hmm. When someone wants to sell a business, one of the things they do is they say, well, who do I know? Or they'll hire a broker who will say, what kind of business might be an ideal buyer of this company? So acquiring multiple businesses always starts with being in one business first. And as soon as you have that first business and you can run it well, acquiring the other businesses is usually easier than getting the first one going or buying the first one. Mm -hmm. So you had asked a question when you started off about how do you determine what kind of business to get into, right? And Mm -hmm. that comes down to expertise and interest to a certain degree. I mean, you could say I'm really interested in a business that has a high margin and I can implement a lot of online advertising and automate processes with employees. And that business could describe many different kinds of businesses that you might get into. Um, Or if you have a certain expertise in a certain field, it might dictate that that's the field you're drawn to. The biggest problem that most business buyers have for their first business is if they try to buy a business that is outside of their scope of expertise, they sometimes miss things 
that someone who's more knowledgeable about that industry might see. Mm. And so, so you wanted to go way out and then pull back, right? So, so in the far flung right. future, coal has multiple businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And so then before that, you got to have the one business, right? And that one business um, w that you buy, you are going to, like you said, likely end up being the person running the business. So it's going to take a certain level of business management expertise, industry knowledge, et cetera, to make sure that you can properly execute that first management role of the first business. Right. Right. So knowing how old are you? 22. 22. All right. This is great. So you got, you got time to, to work on this. And even if you make some mistakes, you still got time. So that's good. So, have you done any kind of analysis about what kinds of businesses you really like? Like, have you thought about types of businesses at all? Or I know it was part of your question about how to right. choose. Yeah. So for me, I like, so I get, I'll give you a little bit of background. I've done, I like, I know I like more short transactional, um, more like I, I would, yeah, short transactional types of, of businesses i guess i would say like for instance when i was in high school um i ran a little ebay business and i just sold flipped stuff that i mm -hmm. bought from my uncle's uh or split profit with my uncle for he did wholesale liquidation so i bought and sold stuff but i mean it's like you you take pictures of the item you put it up there and then it's listed and then you don't have to deal with it until it sells and it sells and it's like that where it's like the business I'm in right now, which is a service business is completely different mm -hmm. uh, from that side. So I guess I, I've thought about it that way and I'm good with the internet. I'm doing marketing right now. So I understand like Facebook advertising, Instagram, um, Twitter, like P Pinterest. I understand these different channels that these older generation, generational people might not be using as advertising right now. Mm -hmm. So I understand that the power of that, and like if I went into a business where I could implement that, uh, I could probably drive a lot of revenue okay. uh, to grow the business or something. So maybe something online is what I've been thinking, but I want to weigh like, for instance, if you bought like a sheet metal business or I don't know, some, some business with quote unquote moat, what Warren Buffett would say is moat. Um, it could be, you know, like an industry that's, has steady 10% year over year growth or the business does, uh, but it's not going to blow up 300 times. Like maybe you could do with an internet business. Whereas with an internet business, maybe you could blow it up and grow it hundred percent or something crazy when you take it over, but it might not have as much uh, moat and it, you know, somebody else could come along and put you out of business rather easily. Okay. So, so th there's a whole bunch of different topics that you just, that you just touched on there that I think that we should, <laughs> I think that we should uh, we should tackle. So first of all, um, industry growth rates. If if an industry is growing, that's that's a macro indicator, um, and usually those figures are for a region, a state, or a country. For example, um, mm -hmm. I think it's very comforting to know that an industry is growing, but in my experience, you, you got to be looking at the micro level. You have to be looking at the individual company, mm -hmm. and the the thing that also you have to be aware of is that even if your individual company were growing at the industry rate, let's say it's 10% a year, 
that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that the profits or earning of the earnings of the business are growing at 10% a year because businesses are asymmetrical systems. So you could have a business and make money, a million dollars in sales, and you have a profit of a hundred grand. Let's say your net profit is 10%. Mm-hmm. You could grow that business by 10% and have a revenue of 1.1 million. But that new revenue doesn't require any changes to your overheads, just your direct inputs, labor and materials. So if you're, if the gross margin of that business was 50%, that extra hundred grand of revenue would, would cause 50 grand to go down to the profit. Mm-hmm. So, so the profit, even though the revenue grew by 10%, the profit would grow by 50%. Right. So, so don't be too concerned about whether you think the revenues in an industry are going to grow by different rates. A lot of how well you do in business has to do with how you manage the specifics of what's going on in the company that you own. And so even businesses that are in low growth industries can do things um, to increase profitability and their profits can increase far in excess of the industry revenue growth. This is why people get attracted to business because you can't, for example, you know, buy a piece of investment real estate and, you know, increase the profit by 50% in a year typically, right? Mm -hmm. However, real estate is more secure in that it's just this big tangible thing. You don't have competitors and all kinds of other market forces that could hurt your business. So Mm -hmm. um, what I would actually advise is I would advise taking a drive around your city, in particular, maybe an industrial park. You talked about sheet metal and other kinds of industrial sort of businesses. Do you have an, an interest in that kind of sector? Um, I don't really have an interest in the sector. Mm-hmm. I just I just heard of it, and like, listen, I've been listening to a couple different podcasts about acquisition entrepreneurship entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and just different like different businesses they own and like the reasoning behind it and like the sheet metal business maybe that like a business that's been around for 30 years that has these relationships built and there's just uh i don't know what i would i would say like moat a little bit to where it's like study it's established right so but no yeah but yeah. I haven't, I'm not like super interested in that. Okay. I guess I would just be interested in reducing the risk of buying a business. So buying a business that is established, has good earnings history, has a clientele, et cetera. You know, those are, those are the basic things people want when they buy a business. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can do as an exercise is you can create a list of business characteristics that interest mm-hmm. you. You already mentioned transactional versus service. So maybe that mean that would mean, for example, you might be more interested in a business that sells, um, you know, air circulation fan components to HVAC installers rather than mm-hmm. a sheet metal business making ductwork for sheet for HVAC installers. Because again, once you introduce the project management part of it, then you're like doing a bunch of work. There's an opportunity for error, etc. Whereas 
then it sounds like you're not quite interested in that. Whereas the company that sells them the fan, they just take it off the shelf and hand it over. Mm-hmm. Right. Even if they're doing business with the same customers all the time, it's it's more about, you know, managing inventory, et cetera. But, you know, the order comes in, the order is filled, the order is done. Right. Right. That that's that sounds like that's appealing to you. Yes. So so that would be one of your criteria. So you start to build a list of criteria. So other criteria could be, for example, do you want a B2B business where you give trade credit to your customers? Like again, that HVAC component parts business, uh, maybe they give their customers 30 days to pay, for example. So that would be a, a business that has receivables and trade credit versus a cash business, which is like, you know, corner store where people come in and you get paid in that moment when they take the things mm-hmm. out of the store. So that would be another kind of characteristic. And you can kind of go through the different aspects of a business and create a list of characteristics. Then you need to go and look around for businesses. And here's the one characteristic I, in particular, I want you to pay attention for. Is that particular industry dominated by big actors, big you know, companies, or is it filled with independents, small operators? Okay, so let me give you an example. Um, oil refining is dominated by big companies, right? Mm-hmm. It would be very tough for you as an independent business person to go say, I'm going to get into the oil refining business. Mm-hmm. However, auto repair is a business with all kinds of independents. There's all, you know, probably within a 10 minute drive of your house, you can find some independently owned auto repair businesses, right? Mm-hmm. So that's got to be a key indicator on your list because if you decide to target an industry where you're going to have lots of independent operators, it means more potential acquisition targets. And then it's a question of how do I develop, you know, you're 22 years old. So you're probably not going to buy a business next year. Mm-hmm. You have time to start working in the industry that you eventually target. So let's say you choose auto repair. Say, I'm going to get into the auto repair business. Well, if you're not a mechanic, you can get a job, maybe at customer service up at the front counter. Or maybe if the place is big enough, you can get a job with parts or ordering or, or other aspects of that industry but it's going to give you a chance to start learning what goes on, how they manage their business, et cetera. And then you're going to want to leave and go to another one so that you can start to see the differences in the businesses. Mm -hmm. And you're going to start to learn about that industry and learn about what works and what doesn't while you're saving money. Ideally, maybe there's an opportunity for you to work at a place that has an older owner. And you can, you know, create a relationship with that person and maybe that can be leveraged into your first acquisition. But it's going to be a lot easier for you to find an auto repair business that you can buy. Versus, and, and especially if you've been working in it for several years. If you show up at a bank and, uh, you know, you have no experience in sheet metal and you want to buy a sheet metal fab place that builds ductwork, that's going to be a problem for the banker. Right. But if you if you show up and say, I want to buy an auto repair business, they're going to say, well, are you a mechanic? And you say, no, but I've worked in six different auto repair businesses over the last seven years. And I've 
you know, done these different jobs. And in my last job, I'm in charge of customer service up front and I schedule all the jobs and I order all the parts and I talk to all the customers and I manage their expectations and I upsell them on maintenance packages and et cetera, et cetera. The, the banker is going to be very much pleased to be able to do a deal with you for that business because you've got actual direct experience. And then once you get into that industry um, and you, you own an auto repair shop, well, then the guy down the street who you start to send your muffler work to, and this is, again, this is just a totally random example. When he gets to the point where he wants to retire, if you've mentioned to him casually how you're interested in growing by acquiring other businesses, when he decides he wants to sell the muffler shop, he's going to come and talk to you first. And that's where you get that opportunity. And it makes sense, right? Because now you can leverage both businesses to drive customer traffic to the other business. Maybe eventually you buy a building, you put both businesses together and start sharing you know, front desk personnel and you get efficiencies of scale and that kind of thing. Right. Right. So, so there's, that's how like, I have a, a buddy who's appeared on the YouTube channel before and he's owned many different restaurants and he did a deal to buy a seafood restaurant at one point a few years ago. And as soon as he bought the seafood restaurant within a year, he was approached by two or three other people that owned seafood restaurants that wanted to sell. And before he bought his first, he worked for like years to find the right one to buy. And the difference is that from the vantage point of a business owner, they can't see buyers. Like they don't know who in the public walking around wants to buy a restaurant. And then this Mm -hmm. always has to be kept secret, right? To protect the value of the business. But as soon as those guys heard that somebody bought the seafood restaurant in the next town, well, now they knew someone buying seafood restaurants. Mm. They could identify him for the first time ever. Mm. And then they approached him when they wanted to sell. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, targeting an industry and getting some actual experience in the industry is going to be key. Okay. You can because- up- mm-hmm. The reason why I ask that is like, for instance, for online businesses, um, I know there's lenders that are willing to lend without any experience. And I wanted to get your take on online businesses. I don't, yeah, have you true. heard of quiet light brokerage before? Yeah, I have. And, and so, I'd like to start by saying something really controversial. Uh-huh. There's no such thing as an online business. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean by that. There are just businesses. Right. So when I was a kid, Back in the 1980s, there would be advertisements in magazines because I didn't have websites to look at. Mm-hmm. And the advertisements would say, you know, if you're interested in, I don't know, model trains, call for our catalog. And then you would mail them a letter or you would call them and they would mail you a catalog because websites didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right. And you'd look in the catalog and you'd fill in an order form and you'd write a check and you'd mail that to someplace. And they would mail you the thing because we didn't have Amazon. <laughs> All Amazon is, is that exact same business model, except it happens mm. on the World Wide web. Mm. And so um, businesses have always advertised. You mentioned earlier about like Facebook and Instagram promotion and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Businesses have always advertised and you're right. Some business owners 
who maybe are of certain age don't know about Instagram or how it can be used to market a business. Mm-hmm. There definitely is an advantage in understanding how to, you know, develop new markets and meet new customers in new and different ways, especially if you have the field all to yourself. Like if you buy an auto repair business in a certain town and you're able to use geotargeting to advertise, you know, a tire special in that community to people in that town using Instagram who drive, then you can garner more attention than everyone else who's trying to, you know, be on the radio, for example. Right. Right. So yeah. when I hear online business, what it usually means to me is that people want to own and run a business where they just stay at home on their computer and they don't have to see or talk to anyone. Is that kind of, is that, am I hitting, am I getting that kind of right? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that, I guess what I would say, when I would say like an Amazon FBA business is what mm-hmm. I would say when I'm talking like online business. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that might be, I guess I couldn't really say like I'm, I work from home now mm-hmm. by myself and it's nice, but I also miss interacting with people. I like talking with people. I like having conversations like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I have like an introvert and extrovert part of me. But yeah, I mean, that might be, that may be interesting to me to like basically work from the computer or, <clears throat> yeah, but I'd like to, I don't know. I, it, um, yeah, I mean, like I'd, I'd be willing to do that. Yeah. I, so the, I like like an office with people where you can go in and like collaborate because I like to, I just like being around people and the connection that you get. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, I'd, I'd be willing to do something where I just have like my home office where I run everything over the computer. Yeah. Or what you said, like alone. Okay. So the, the valuation multiples for these online businesses, like, like you just mentioned, like Amazon FBA. And, you know, to me, that's super risky because your entire business is built upon somebody else's platform, mm-hmm. but the valuation multiples that people are paying for these businesses is going up incredibly high because there is a, a growing group of people who believe that these businesses don't actually involve work. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they think that they're going to buy this business Amazon takes care of delivering everything. And so there's no work to do. I, I know someone who's done Amazon FBA and they ended up with hundreds of SKUs and they ended up with teams of VAs to manage all the SKUs and update everything and make sure all the text was correct and their listings were right. It was a real business. Like it was a big business. They had all the same problems that every other business had mm-hmm. and everything was done online. So I, a common theme in my business buyer adventure group coaching program are people with IT and technical experience and marketing experience, like, like what you're describing, looking for businesses that have not adopted any of those tools mm-hmm. in order to make an acquisition and then implement those things to try and improve those businesses. Which can be a real winning strategy. Right. And that's kind of, that's kind of like my, that's kind of the two different 
pathways that I was looking at is like I either buy a business that doesn't have these implemented or buy one that's already running that already has, you know, like advertisement sound, they already have systems in place. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of just hop in, learn, like, whenever you buy the business, from what I understand, is there's a certain training period where the owner transitions the business to you, business relationships, um, the, all that kind of stuff, they transfer over to you over a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. And then you can keep them on as a consultant for, you know, I imagine X dollars per hour, um, you know, for whatever a year, or I don't know what the terms are, but that's what I've researched. Well, it's, and so. it's negotiated every time. So, right. so it, it depends on the type of business. So for example, if you decide that, and again, we're using this, just this example that I pulled mm-hmm. out randomly, but if you decide that the auto repair and maintenance industry is for you, um, if you have six years of experience in those businesses, then that transition period is going to be a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you buy that business, you may be wanting to make changes rather quickly if you know that you have some best practices that are better than what are going on in that business. Mm-hmm. And so that transition and handover period can really be affected by who the buyer is. Okay. Sometimes, for example, in, uh, in franchises, um, the franchisor won't want the seller to do any kind of training or transition with the buyer. Because, because they know that over time people develop bad habits mm. and what they want is for the new owner to come to their training and learn from the latest, you know, development program they have to train someone in how to run the franchise. Okay. Yeah. And so for, for these businesses, like I know you said, Amazon FBA, I would, you know, it is risky. It's built on Amazon. If they make one change, then you could be out of luck. Or, mm-hmm. you know, drastically increase, but say it's like a Shopify store or uh, just an online e-commerce business or an online SaaS business, um, something like that is what, just anything that you can, that's trend, that's like uh, the job board, um, something like, something of that nature that's maybe not relying on a platform, it's not relying on Amazon where like mm-hmm. an e-commerce store, you have your own domain. Shopify, it's a huge business that's in favor of the of the the small business owner. Yeah, and for what, and for people who don't for people who don't know, Shopify is a, a service. It's just they they make it easy for you to set up a store online and accept credit card payments and things like that. So yeah, so to me, um, a Shopify store is like owning a real small business, like like a store you would see on a main street in a business in, in a town. Right. So, Oh, there's the, you know, sporting goods store and they sell this stuff. And all that is, is, is like a interactive online catalog. So you've got your storefront, your Shopify store. And then the next problem is the same problem that that main street business owner faces is how do I get people to come to my store? Mm-hmm. So, I, I I like those kinds of businesses because in my mind, it's a real business. You get to know who the customers are. You control the relationship with them. You can decide mm-hmm. how you want to market. You know, you can uh, e- do email marketing. You can talk to them directly. You can send out specials and things like that. Um, I like those kinds of businesses. Um, you have a greater degree of involvement in the fulfillment, of course. So once somebody places that order, then what happens? I've worked with business owners who have used contract fulfillment centers. Uh, 
where mm-hmm. all their product is made usually by a third-party manufacturing firm. It gets delivered to that warehouse. It's inventoried there. And then the warehouse does the pack and uh, pick and pack and sends mm-hmm. it out to someone. And, you know, for every part of it that's outsourced, it makes it easier from the point of view of, yeah, it's just me sitting behind my computer. All those people take a certain part of the margins because they have to make money too. Um, you know, and, and things change as these businesses grow. Um, really, uh, again, Shopify is a great opportunity for maybe someone who's in a brick and mortar business who's never really done anything to develop any kind of online sales to, to do that. I know that when the pandemic mm-hmm. hit, I think they were offering 90 day or 120 day free trials because they were trying to help small independent brick and mortar mom and pop shops to get online so that mm-hmm. they, they had a chance to, to do some business. Yeah, it's, it's uh that's a, that's an interesting path too, is like a brick and mortar store that you can put on, maybe you could purchase and they haven't explored that avenue to put mm-hmm. a, you know, do online and you could expand it that way. Uh, but I just want to get your take on that, you know, like first, just because <clears throat> I know, or from what I've just researched, pe- people think, or I would say, from what I've researched that there's a stigma out there that maybe these online quote unquote internet businesses are a little bit more risky than another business. Cause there's, there's lower barrier to entry. You know, like I could go on Shopify. I could, it's a lot easier to start a, a Shopify uh, or an e-com, online e-commerce business than it is to start a, you know, a she metal manufacturing business or a, uh, or a, HVAC business or something like that. Cause you got to have, uh, you know, trucks and you have to have equipment and things like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, you know, this, most people have a computer and it's 30 or 50 bucks a month for a store. You know, you get a couple hundred dollars worth of inventory and you can probably, you know what I'm saying? There's just a low barrier. To right. Entry. But, but you're talking about startup, right? I mean, one mm-hmm. of the reasons why, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of businesses out there that trade for low multiples of earnings because they're risky, and one of the risks is new entrants, new people mm-hmm. coming into the industry. I mean, Shopify could be free, but if there's an existing player that has an email list of thirty thousand people who've been buying stuff from them, that is the moat. Okay, <clears throat> the the fact that the audience is already paying attention to the other store. Right. And so that new startup, yeah, they, yeah, hey, we're open now. We spent $30 to open our Shopify store, but now we have no audience. Nobody's coming to the store. Mm-hmm. So then what does it cost to go and acquire customers? And this is why buying a business makes more sense because you, when you buy the business, you acquire that audience at the same time. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so it's it's just getting expensive because, like I said before, there's this growing pool of of people out there who think that because it's an online business, it's just all automatic. Mm-hmm. And it's often promoted in that way. You know, there's a lot of advertising right. online for these, you know, oh, you can make money with very little effort working, you know, a few mm-hmm. hours a week. And, you know, you can maybe set up your marketing to be adver- to be automated and you can have people – 
you know, doing things, you can do things to generate traffic. That's all kind of automated. But when somebody receives their package and there's something wrong, guess what? A human is going to have to do something. Right. right? And, and that's, <laughs> and that's the work of running a business is all of the places where the thing, the systems break. You know, or the, the you get a bunch of orders and then something gets backordered. Well, what do you do? Do you hold the shipments or do you ship them incomplete and incur additional shipping charges for the missing product? Or do you take mm. a gamble and try to substitute? Mm. Right. I ordered on eBay one of these laser thermo- uh, thermometer things for taking my kids' temperature by, you know, zapping them in the forehead. And <laughs> what I got in the mail. <laughs> was uh, two um, electronic oral thermometers <laughs> and a note saying that what I had ordered was out of stock and and um, hopefully I would find this replacement to be acceptable. And so what if I didn't? You know, like... Yeah, that you're going to have some angry probably chew up an hour of someone's time on the other end of of the the conversation. Right. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's that's like what I enjoy is like, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm the whole interest in business to me too, is just like the, I like solving problems. mm -hmm. And, um, I guess that's probably what most entrepreneurs like to do is solve problems and be free. (laughs) Um, People uh, like so. to serve others. And what, what I've learned over the course of time is that the higher margins are usually in things that people don't like to do and are not necessarily easy to do. So what? Uh, like, yeah, like whatever is being done, right? And so it's not easy to provide medical service because you got to go spend all those years in medical school to be a doctor. And so the margins are, be- are good for doctors, right? Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to do. And so um, I've seen businesses and, and every, if your business is very public facing and everyone can see your business, it's easy for people to stop and think, Hmm, I wonder if that's a good business for me to get into as well. Mm-hmm. So the more public a presence a business has, the more opportunity I think there is for somebody to decide to enter the market. Mm-hmm. And so this is why one of my favorite exercises to get people to do is to drive around industrial parks and go down the roads that, you know, where there's no big flashy signs and there's these little industrial strip units that have, you know, little signs on the doors where nobody's going there unless they're destined to go there because that's the place you have to go for whatever it is they do. Mm -hmm. And those guys typically can have a good business without a lot of people paying attention. Okay. Are are those businesses typically, do they typically have like a lot of clientele or does a lot of their clients, does a lot of their business come from a couple of people? Well, it, it just depends on the industry, but a lot of the business that you, the businesses that you'll find in that kind of locale, very few people are visiting them because they've got like sales reps out calling on people. They're talking to their customers over the phone or through email, and okay. maybe they're 
they're, they're keeping an inventory of product there that gets sent out or delivered, right? And so right. they're running this little business. They're not on the main street. So not everybody's driving by seeing them. And the people they do business with, maybe they only call them, you know, every once in a while and place an order. So those people don't really see them as, you know, a big business. It's just, hey, this is who we use for, you know, our indust our synthetic industrial gaskets or whatever, some mm -hmm. weird thing. And those people can build up a good business. And they can, if they're delivering product and having salespeople call on people, they can grow to cover big geographic areas without having to necessarily add all the overhead of additional locations. Mm, right. Okay. They, they yeah. can, you know, there's all kinds of little niche businesses that are serving entire states or entire regions of the country from one place. So do you recommend something like that? Well, it, it depends if that's where some of your interests lie. Right. Okay. It's, you know, and this is why I say, you know, create the list of business attributes and then go look at a comprehensive list of businesses. I always use the yellow pages as, as an example. You create a list of business attributes and go in the yellow pages and just start flipping through the pages and look at the different headings, you know, for the business categories and say, does this kind of business fit with what I'm looking for? And there's other lists of business, of business types you can find online. Like you can look at the SICK code lists or the NAICS code lists. These are just uh, like the government uses them for like, lists to categorize businesses, but they're very comprehensive and you can go through them and, and see, you know, different types of businesses and, and create a list of possibilities and then learn more about those businesses. It's difficult to really push and work hard if it's a business that completely disinterests you. Right. Right. Okay. And if your if your motivation and interest is simply to deliver superior customer service and make your customers happy, you know, you can stretch that interest across a lot of different categories. Yeah, right? that's probably one of my most um I mean like the product interest plays a little bit of a part in it, but the really the biggest thing is I wanna provide a more value to them. Like if they're gonna give me, you know, if they're gonna pay me for some some product or service that whatever they're paying me for, they're getting their money's worth and then some mm -hmm. like superior customer service. I think that's, I mean, with anything, I think that's like the, that's really the kicker on top. Even if you have great work, if you have bad customer service, you're not mm -hmm. going to, you know, it's going to be hard to, to do business. Yeah. I run into that all the time. Um, you know, especially in things like home services mm -hmm. and a lot of trades and contracting, you mm -hmm. know, people can deliver top notch work, but they don't, return calls. They don't return emails. They don't show up when they say they're going to. And people just get annoyed by the experience of, of the process of trying to get the thing done. Right. And when it's done, everyone says, yeah, you did a great job, but I waited four weeks for you to show up, you know, right? and, and you never gave me any idea of when you were coming. Mm -hmm. And I, I was at my dad's last night and he He's always been a big supporter of, of small independent business. He loves supporting the small guy. And he started in the spring trying to get a new furnace put in his house. And we're in Canada. So there's a definite deadline by which time you have to have this project done. Right. <laughs> so he started in the spring. Three different companies came. 
talked to him, took pictures, took measurements, promising him quotes. By Labor Day, none of them had delivered an estimate. Three different contractors. Wow. So he ended up calling the multi-billion dollar giant ginormous energy company. Went mm-hmm. to their website, filled in a form on like, you know, an evening in the evening one day. The next morning, a guy called him, said, I'm going to be over in your part of town today in the afternoon. Can I stop by? The guy came over, took pictures, took measurements. The next day, a technician came over to look at the site. And my dad had a quote the day after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, right? that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I would like to, I think there's, there's probably a lot of opportunity in the service business to create, you know, something like that. Yeah. Where it's a top quality. It's a good, you know, it might not be the most, it might not be the best, the extreme best labor in the world, but it's going to be quality work, but the customer mm-hmm. service is going to be superb. The the mm-hmm. reason those three other businesses weren't able to get their act together is because they're very busy, but more importantly, they're run by technicians. Mm-hmm. Their business is created by people who knew how to do that kind of work, not necessarily businesses run by business people. Mm-hmm. And so I think you've you've made the decision that you're a business person and you're going to be working on these things. Have right. you read E-Myth Revisited yet? So I started reading it and I didn't get through it. It's just kind of like, <laughs> I heard it's a really good book, like the principles and concepts in it are really good. And mm-hmm. uh I need to read it, but I, I, I mean, I wasn't in the position of owning a business and going through that or even like at the point when I bought it, I wasn't really considering purchasing a business. So yeah. to make that a long answer short, uh, I haven't, I read a little bit of it. Okay. So you should read it because it, it creates this idea of how businesses, um, uh, you know, need these systems and processes in place in order to make sure that they can deliver for the customer, et cetera. And you'll read about that in the book and, and about the description of how the author describes how you do it. Um, but there are all kinds of businesses out there. Again, we're talking about businesses, industries that have a lot of independent operators. So there's more acquisition targets. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about auto repair, but you know, Home service as a category, things that get done at people's homes. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of these businesses that are run by technicians who have right. the businesses have never performed to their potential because the systems have never been put in place to properly manage how these guys work. Mm-hmm. And so it could be very easy to make an acquisition, very affordable to make an acquisition in a, of a business that has all these kinds of problems. If you develop the skills to implement these systems and get these things going, you can create okay. more profit with the same revenue and then create the opportunity to serve more customers with the same resources as you become more efficient. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then that just becomes a fact though of like, if you can, I mean, the the only reason why I wouldn't miss the like home service, the business would probably have to be big enough to where either you the laborer works for you or 
you can hire some laborers to do the work or would you have to do it or would I have to do it? No, I, so, so I would say that you want to have a business that's at least big enough for, um, the owner to be doing business while the service is being delivered by employees. Right. Yeah. And what, what kind of capital would you need? All right. So I have a couple more questions that I want to get through before. Um, So what kind of real quick though, what kind of capital would you need to buy something like that? Like what would you for capital for a down payment and then you get a loan on it? Yeah. So a general rule of thumb that I find works with most businesses is if you can have about 50% of what the SDE will be. So SDE is seller's discretionary earnings. So if you want to buy a business that has $100,000 of cash flow to a full-time working owner-operator, then you Mm -hmm. want to have about half that cash. Okay. And then the rest, um, you can get financing through the bank and seller financing? Exactly. Okay. So, And what what size business would you say? Like what size... Um, I don't, they don't use EBITDA for these, EBITDA for these size businesses, but like what gross revenue would you be looking for or what sort of SDE would you be looking for in a a business to buy uh, that would be sizable enough to have employees and things like that? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult because it would vary so much by industry. Okay. Right. I mean, you could have a business with a million dollars in sales and five employees with an SDE of a hundred grand, and you could have another business with sales of 400 grand and two employees with an SDE of a hundred grand as well. Oh, okay. Right. So it just, it depends on the type of industry and what they're doing and what their gross margin is and you know, what the inputs cost and all that kind of stuff. A lot more than a lot more. You'd have to be looking at the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, the, the first thing you should start with is trying to create an, a list of potential industries. Mm-hmm. And the number one criteria would be that there's a lot of independently owned businesses in that field. Right. Okay. Right. And then that would help Which, with rolling up too, you know, like, you yeah, said, well, exactly. People. Because if there's a lot of those types of businesses in your town, then, you know, as you get established, maybe you can acquire some competitors Maybe you can acquire some people in the neighboring county or the next town over, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, so I don't know, are you, you're familiar with the term moat, but like, how do you determine the moat of like a, a certain business or industry? I know, like, I've read the biography on Warren Buffett and he, he kind of talks about it a lot. These mm-hmm. kind of businesses that pique his interest. How do you, are you familiar with that or how do you determine that? Well, the the question is, is what does someone have to overcome to get into this industry? So in order for me okay. to open up a competing sandwich shop with, if, if you're in the sandwich business, is I need, you know, I could probably go find some used restaurant equipment, a sandwich, you know, ingredient table, maybe a baking center, or maybe I could just buy bread that's already baked. And mm-hmm. then I got to get a food handling license and get inspected by the you know, the county health guy. So while all that stuff costs money, it's, it's pretty easy to do. People do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you compare that with starting up a septic pumping business where I'm going to go clean out people's septic tanks uh, who don't have city sewer. Right. Mm-hmm. Now I got to get 
you know, a half million dollar truck or more. I got to get all kinds of environmental permits and special handling training and all that other kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I got to, you know, figure out where I'm going to take the stuff and I have to meet whatever requirements those people have, whether it's some kind of, you know, government agency or mm-hmm. private, you know, uh, remediation place that accepts that waste. Right. So the, the, the hurdles that someone has to jump over to get into the septic business are significantly higher than opening up a sandwich shop. Okay. And, and this gets reflected in the, in the valuation multiples. So people who are selling a sandwich shop would get a much lower multiple of cash flow than people selling the septic business. Okay. Yeah. So they're harder to acquire more capital probably. Yeah. And, and the, you know, another great one is how price sensitive are the customers. So if you're in a business where you serve people regularly and you have a price increase, they're going to notice. Mm-hmm. Whereas that septic pumping firm, maybe they go visit a home every two or three years. So uh, they, okay. they can have like a 10 or 15% price increase and the person who hired them can't quite remember what they paid last time. Right. Right. So they're not as likely to say, wow, they're expensive. I'm going to go with someone else next time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've been getting a $10 lunch special at your local restaurant and one day you go in, now it's all of a sudden it's 1075. Yeah. You're going to notice. Yeah. It, and, it, and it feels like more <laughs> of a burden because you're paying that 75 cents all the time. Right. Right. And they created a, uh, an expectation in you that it, your lunch is $10. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, so another question I have is, uh, it kind of goes back to the working in the industry or not. So mm-hmm. I have the, the job I went to school for is um, a third assistant engineer on ships, like cargo container ships, whatever, big ships, 800 foot, 1000 foot ships that um, sail across the ocean. Anyway, I can, there's an opportunity there for, and I just got married. And so we can live off my wife's salary. Mm-hmm. And I have a rental property that I bought when I got off the ship. So we have, we were still like, you know, making net after we, all of our expenses and even a lot of the spending money, probably 500 bucks a month we're saving. Um, I could go on the ship and make for six months of work. So either 60 days on 90 days on or 120 days on and then 120 days off make anywhere from 90 to $110,000 a year. Wow. Um, which is a substantial amount of money at, for being 22. And mm-hmm. so what I'm battling with right now is, should I go do that for three or four years and, you know, get, I mean, that's pre-tax, you know, I'd probably walk away with 70, but it's still a lot. And save that up, you know, hundred to $300,000 over three or four years, five years, and use that to buy a business? Or should I go work in an industry where it's going to be a lot harder to save money, but I'll get the experience? That is a great question. Um, and you know, my answer is actually going to be to do both. So if you, if you can go ship out for 90 days and then have 90 days off in the 90 days you're off. I mean, I know it's nice to have time off, but if you could be doing something like having a casual position or, um, going and getting different work experience for people that need extra help in these different industries that you identify, mm-hmm. you can be banking money and you could be going out and learning about these different things. 
when okay. you're on the, when you're on the ship, what's your workday like? Are you working like 16 hours a day, or do you have a yeah. reasonable amount of time off? 12 hours, 13 hours a day. So okay. I mean, when I'm off, I'll read books or listen to yeah. podcasts. Is what I do. What What was you going to recommend? No, I was just going to say like, um, any industry out there, like you're you're looking at business stuff and buying a business stuff and things like what I have on my YouTube channel. When you finally identify certain industries, you'll realize that there's an internet of information about those specific industries too. Okay. So so if you go searching online, you're going to find guys who have podcasts about how to run your auto repair business mm. or your muffler shop or your transmission shop or whatever it is. Right. Okay. And so when you identify those industries, you can then start to immerse yourself in the chit chat that those groups have going on. Right. To start to learn more about the specific type of business. Okay. And so, uh, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll, is there any industries that you would recommend that you could go get a part? So the, the issue, I did that whenever I went originally on the ship, mm -hmm. I was doing meat, like steak sales for a company and mm -hmm. it was just a rotational job. So I could just find something like that. Or there's certain industries that have just part-time work that would work with like 90 days on 90 off. Or just don't tell them and just work for them for 90 days. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's a good idea to be deceptive. Um, right. Because if you explain your situation, anyone who owns a business is going to appreciate the fact that it's hard to say no to the kind of money you can earn on the ship. Um, and you never know when that person is going to be instrumental in helping you do a deal. Hmm or could help introduce you to someone whose business you might end up buying. Right. So you, you always want to approach this from the point of view that you're trying to build yourself a position in the community where mm -hmm. people are going to be respect you and right. that you can be seen as an honest person, you know, a good dealer. Um, mm -hmm. With respect to sales, working on sales skills and how to deal with customers and, and how to make sales is probably the skill set that is the most transferable across all different kinds of industries. Mm -hmm. So if you create a list of five or six or seven different industries that you think might be possible for you to, to go and buy a business, mm -hmm. working on sales skills is going to give you the opportunity to get into those different businesses. It's the one thing right. nobody wants to do. <laughs> so but it's, it's the most, yeah, but it's the most important part of any business. Right. If you're not selling anything, you're not making any money. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. That was my other thing I was thinking about. Um, trying to look for, instead of going on the ship, looking for somewhere to sell, learn sales at, and just doing that full time. Cause I mean, you can make a good amount of money doing sales as well. If, mm. if you, uh, you know, like you can make more than what I would make on the, on the ship. Yeah. And the one, the one thing I'll caution you about, about learning how to do sales is that there are all kinds of sales courses you can spend thousands of dollars on. Um, just get the classic books about sales and mm -hmm. then get experience. There's, there's nothing that will teach you more about sales than actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew a guy that had a Sandler franchise. Uh, Sandler sales is one of the big established names in sales training. Mm -hmm. And um, the people who did the best with the programs were people who were in sales who would do the program and come and learn the material. And then they'd be able to go back, you know, immediately and apply what they learned and, and right. 
th those people had the best results in improving um, their ability because they were wow. in it every day. The whole idea that you can take a course that teaches you sales and then go several weeks later and walk into a business and then start selling what they're <laughs> selling, it, it, it's a lot more difficult to transplant those skills. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely putting it into action. I'm reading a, I, I started reading books and there's a book I'm reading now. It's called How to Get Rich. It sounds pretty, uh, the title's awful, but it's actually a really good book. It's by Felix Dennett. He's a founder of a mag, like a couple magazines over mm -hmm. in the UK. And um, he talks about like, you can have all these great ideas and learn all this stuff, but if you never put it into action, you know, it's worthless. So I like that, yeah. you know, what, I mean, that's essentially, you know, if you're getting all this training, but you're not able to put out, put it to action, then it's not going to do you any good. Yeah. Um, no, I know, I know it's three o'clock, but if, could I squeeze one more question out of you? Yeah, sure. Um, so the other, the only, the last question I have is, do you have any experience with um, hiring CEOs or been in relations with people dealing just with businesses of people hiring CEOs? If so, how would you, how do you recommend finding them? And, you know, like, how does that, what does that look like? Uh, okay. So, so this is, this is a big topic. Um, <laughs> let me, let me tell you that, you know, as you grow and build your businesses, it's not really the person that would call themselves a CEO that you need. So you, you need to understand a business. Then eventually you're going to want to put someone in place to manage that business, but you need to understand what's going on in the business so that you can create a system for knowing what's happening when you're not there. Mm -hmm. So the analogy that I make is if you look at businesses that have a lot of locations, so there's a lot of like, I don't know, Texaco gas stations or BP gas stations or something. Each one mm -hmm. of those gas stations has a manager. Then there's a regional manager who's watching the managers. Mm -hmm. right? You need to develop the skills of the regional manager. How do you see what's going on in those different locations without actually being there and identify mm -hmm. what areas need to be addressed? Because someone who is a CEO, they're going to have a lot of the same skills that that an entrepreneur would have, they're used to making big decisions about strategic vision and direction and all this kind of thing. But the other thing that CEOs have access to are teams of people and resources to execute all these things. Mm -hmm. Most businesses, most small businesses that you are going to acquire in the early part of your path are not going to have the resources in place for someone like that to leverage. Okay. Right. Like the CEO yeah. might say, we're going to start sourcing this from China. And then, you know, in your business, he turned like, who does he turn to, to execute that plan? Right. It, the, the, there's a mismatch between that idea of a CEO and the world of small business. Mm. So you it'd have to be, you have to grow you. to a reasonable size. Yeah. It's you. Like if you decide to get into auto repair and eventually you own 30 auto repair locations, yeah. well, then maybe you're going to hire a president or a general manager that's going to be running all of them. Mm -hmm. But setting the strategic vision of that business, even that business, 
it's still going to be you. Right. Right. Okay. So I guess it's just until it grows to a certain point, certain yeah. point of the growth. Cause I know this is like a extreme example. There's not many people like Warren Buffett, but obviously there's a, a lot of people in place in his businesses to where he, they're all making the strategic decisions. Um, but they just have, it's just, they're at so much scale that they have that ability. Well, and, and Warren Buffett invests largely in publicly traded companies. Right. Well, so, like before, for instance, Geico, like they own, got Brookshire Hathaway owns Geico outright. Mm-hmm. But when he made his big investment in American Express, mm-hmm. he didn't have to find a CEO. Mm. All that stuff was okay. already there. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's that definitely helps out a lot, and I appreciate the the knowledge, the insight that you provided. It's definitely helps me to guide me and uh, kind of get started here with my journey. Awesome. Well, thanks for calling in, Cole, and uh, have a great, happy holiday season down there in Texas. <laughs> I will. You too. Have fun in Canada. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, David. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.